Welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I'm a confidence coach and instigator of joy. I believe that we are all so much more powerful than we can possibly understand. My goal with these conversations is to introduce you to brave, vulnerable people who are finding and owning their awesome. My guests are leaning into what makes them unique and sharing that uniqueness with the world. I hope these conversations inspire you to break free from whatever is holding you back and to step into your own greatness. Welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I'm a certified professional coach specializing in confidence, mindfulness, and joy. And I'm so excited to share this conversation with you this week. As usual, I've got another conversation with this amazing human being who is also absolutely hilarious. Also, as usual, I'm going to start this episode out with sharing with you something that has nothing to do with this episode. I want to talk about trusting the universe, about, well, as my friend Stacy Hartman, who was on an earlier episode of the podcast, describes it, placing your order with the universe and then getting the hell out of the kitchen. As Stacy describes it, you look at the menu, you decide exactly what you want, you place your order, and then you trust that it's going to come out to you exactly how you asked for it, or better. You don't go in the kitchen and say, well, how are you going to make that? How are, you, how are you dicing the apples in that salad? No, you stay out of the kitchen because that's not your job. So this concept can be really tricky, especially for someone like me who does not like specifics. So for me, actually, my favorite thing when I go to a restaurant is to say, hey, I'm gluten-free and I'm vegan, which I'm not anymore, but this is how I used to do it. I'm gluten-free and I'm vegan. Can the chef accommodate me? I would call ahead. And then I'd find out, I'd find some chefs that were super excited to create something for me. It was always absolutely positively better than anything I could imagine. That would be my favorite thing. So that's what I do with the universe. Hey, I want this. And a few years ago, my husband and I declared that we wanted to live someplace that was warm, warmer than Maine, had warm water, had easy access to places where I could train for triathlon, had more of a community feel to it. And we pretty much left it like that. We just wanted the energy to feel good. We wanted positive vibes. And we had no idea where that was. So we set off on an adventure. In fact, we, we thought, <laughs> we thought we knew where we were going. This is the trick of the universe. We thought we were headed to Jupiter, Florida at first. And so we had a campground reservation in Jupiter. And we took our time after we sold our house in Maine, we took our time traveling in the camper down to Jupiter and had a great time just being completely nomadic. And we arrived in the campground in Jupiter and within five minutes, I turned to Pete and I was like, this isn't it. He's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, we're not supposed to be here. This isn't where we're hanging out for the next three months. And we stayed in that campground for 12 hours and then we took off on a nomadic adventure, having absolutely positively no idea where we were going to live next. And there were times when that was super scary. Most humans do not like uncertainty. I happen to love it most of the time, but every once in a while it feels heavy, 
for me. And so we'd go from like the tears, the breakdown of like, oh my God, where are we going to live? To yes, this is so much fun. I love seeing new things. And this was a constant cycle for us. We sold our house in Maine in September and we traveled all up and down the East Coast and then we went out to Arizona. And when we were coming back from Arizona, we headed straight to Greenville, South Carolina because about eight months into our journey, we had decided that this was going to be our home. This Everybody loved Greenville. We'd then been there before. We liked it. It mountains, beautiful, smells good there. Everything is green. And, and the campground was nice too. That's always important. So we're there for three weeks. And I can't remember if it was two weeks in, a week and a half. I realized, I remember coming back from the pool and thinking to myself, well, okay, yeah, I could handle swimming there on a regular basis. And I heard myself, I heard that thought, and I realized, wait, what? You could handle swimming there? That's not what this is about. This adventure is about choosing where we want to live. It's about loving the energy of a place. It's about loving everything. It's about selecting an environment that lifts us up, that supports us. It's not about tolerating something. It's certainly not about rationalizing, which is exactly what we were trying to do. We were trying to make Greenville be the perfect fit for us. And it wasn't. And the universe, universe tapped me on, my sh on the shoulder that time very nicely and nudged me and said, this isn't it. Because we had asked, we put our order in for someplace that was warm and had warm water. Greenville, when we arrived there in April, was 40 and rainy. Rain is water. There are lakes there. But it, it did not match our original order. We had gone in the kitchen and started micromanaging and just think, oh, this will do. Uh-uh. And when we realized that, we committed to, all right, once again, we are head on in uncertainty. We are diving all in and we're gonna continue adventuring. And so we traveled, we went out to the coast because we, we realized we needed the ocean, which we knew from the beginning, but we forgot. We got in our heads, we got in the kitchen, we just started messing around with stuff. So we headed straight out to the coast and then we went up the coast from Myrtle Beach up to um, Wilmington, North Carolina, along the coast of North Carolina, Beaufort in that area, to Virginia Beach, up to Annapolis and then we headed back down and we came to Sarasota for a race. I was racing. I crashed in that race. So when we came here for a race, we weren't thinking about where we wanted to live at all. We were simply thinking, well, we're going to Sarasota. I'm going to race there. And then after I crashed, we were just like, well, we have nowhere else to be right now. Let's see, I had, ha I had a few friends here who hooked me up with some super amazing healers. So it seemed like a good place to stay. And in, the, in that whole journey, in that whole experience here, we realized this is exactly what we were looking for. This is exactly what we asked for. It's when we got ourselves so far out of the kitchen that we weren't even like, oh my God, is this it? Is this it? Is this it? 
we were no longer like pulling into a city and being like, are you the one? Same way if you're dating, every single time you meet someone, if you're like, oh my God, are you the one? It's not really gonna work out that way. But when you just bump into someone or you bump into a place, the universe delivers. The point here is put your order in with the universe and trust like a mofo and stay out of the kitchen, my friends. Now, this week's episode is with Kyle Wright. Kyle is a former bartender, a gamer geek, an outdoors enthusiast, a relationship expert, and the host of the podcast, Masculinity on the Rocks, where he puts his bartending apron on and chats with guests about modern masculinity. He's the co-founder of Wright Wellness Center with Rachel Wright, the one and only Rachel Wright, who happens to be Kyle's wife. She was on an earlier episode of the podcast, which got an epic reception. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, listen to it after you listen to this conversation with Kyle. And I'm going to have them both on again together to talk more relationships. So Kyle helps lead and create many of the trainings and programs. When he's not in the office, you'll find him climbing mountains, rocking some video games, or ripping up something delicious in the kitchen. This conversation, you guys, it's not just for men at all. It's for men and women. It's a conversation about masculinity. It's a conversation that needs to happen right now. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please subscribe to this podcast if you don't already. Share it with everyone you know. Leave a review. Leave five-star ratings, please. And also share your feedback with me and Kyle on Instagram. I'm at Kelsey Abbott CPC, and Kyle is at the right underscore Kyle. You can find that in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. Go forth and be awesome. Hey, Kyle, how are you? I am well. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited you're here. I've, we've, we've been talking about doing this for a while, but we are finally doing it right after you launched your brand new podcast, which I'm very excited about. Me too. Thank you. I'm very excited. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Uh, so the podcast is, well, first of all, thank you for having me. We have been talking about doing this for a while and I'm, I just, I love podcasting and you know, I love talking to people as we were talking about earlier uh, in the day. So the podcast is called masculinity on the rocks and it's something that has always bothered me throughout the years is the way that we treat men in our in our world because we raise a lot of guys with this kind of very old school way of thinking. It's very archaic almost that, you know, a man has to be stoic and reserved and don't show your emotions or else you're a pussy. And like all all these weird messages we get from TV, books, movies, music, uh, you know, and our father figures sell a very weird perception of masculinity. And it wasn't until I was about 19 years old that I realized all of that was not true. When I was watching The Notebook with a girl that I was trying to be intimate with and she was watching Ryan Gosling cry and she's like, isn't that sweet? And I was like, what? Crying is a good thing? Are you kidding? What the, what was I doing for all these years? And even then there's, I had more negative interactions around masculinity and the way people were kind of raised around it. And it, it never sat right. So as I, I bartended for about a decade, and then I met my wife, Rachel, and we started working together and created Right Wellness Center, our business, 
And I, I wanted to talk more to the men that would come in for relationship work when they would come in because one of the, the things we hear the most is my husband doesn't want to do the relationship work in uh, you know, in a heteronormative couple that comes to us, which is really common. It's unfortunate. You know, men are told to not contact their emotions unless it's anger or happiness. And it really makes for a shitty partner when it comes to communicating in a relationship. And it makes work really bad, really hard to start. And so I kept seeing the same pain I saw with men that I would see when I was bartending and guys miserable and hiding from their spouses and staying at the bar too long and getting into trouble as a result of their actions. And I, I, I was over it. I was fed up. And so I blended my bartending background, uh, which is standing and talking while doing things, to uh, a little bit of the relationship work that Rachel and I do together. And hence the podcast was born. I love so much about this and I have a bunch of questions, but I just love the fact that so 10 years of bartending Mm -hmm. prepared you for this moment. It's so perfect. You were basically studying men for 10 years while doing other things. Mm -hmm. And now you're like, now you're talking to them. Yeah. It, it's, it's really interesting Uh, the way people interact with bartenders. I find it fascinating. It's almost like this little piece of like American history you see from like Wild West movies where it's always the bartender has like a bit of wisdom that no one has or, you know, the the gunslinger always shares his like feelings about a girl for the first time. But it's like this weird dynamic and people just drop their egos. They just start sharing this really interesting and vulnerable stuff with bartenders or it's the exact opposite and they want to challenge you as much as possible they want to see if you don't know oh do you know this drink do you know that drink oh i've been to that brewery you don't know anything about that beer they want to either combat you or they want to like rely on you as a resource in a lot of ways so i think it's really interesting and you know for the longest time i wanted to leave bartending in the past because I chose not to see the value in it. And it took me some uncomfortable years to shake that off and sort of accept that the things that we do in the past definitely matter in the future. And I was doing myself a disservice by ignoring almost a decade of my life. And it, the instant I embraced that, uh, the podcast was born overnight pretty much. And a lot of other things have changed for me since I've stopped trying to repress like a significant portion of my life. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I want to get into now, all right, so my first question about masculinity Hmm. is how do you define masculinity? Mm, That's a good question. I would say it is, I would say masculinity is the, I would say it's the way of being a man in whatever way feels comfortable to that man. I would say it's reveling in the things that make men uniquely men and being confident in that, but not having to push the ideals onto other people. I would say that being able to enjoy the parts of masculinity without an ego is, is part of it. I think, does that make sense? Yeah. And I just flipped what you said to insert femininity Mm -hmm. and it, it was like, a sigh of relief. I mean, I feel like it's almost a little, I was, I was really trying to not overly PC that, but I think that there's things that need to be, that's the thing that I find so interesting about masculinity and feminism or feminine energy, if you want to go that way, because I, I think that masculinity and feminism are such different cultural understandings because the feminism is more of like a movement, which is crazy. And the whole idea of it is 
that we have to make a movement out of a basic set of like respect. Anyway, anyway, I could clearly go down that road for a really long time. Um, but the thing that is so important around masculinity and feminism and femininity is that if you take away what makes them it, it ruins everything. So if you take the things that, you know, make a man, not a man, if you take away that stuff, you're left with an incomplete person because you're not a person to live who they are. And the same thing, like men and women have different sets of abilities. They have different skill sets going into things and reveling in that is empowering. It's not, if, if you take something away from someone else, that's the bad part. But when you can allow people to live in their, like, I think the word authenticity is so overused nowadays, but if you let someone live their authenticity, that's important. Like that, I think, is the real power of respecting each other around how we'd like to be respected and who we are. Yeah. So one of the things that came up for me as you were saying that is I'm, I'm thinking you're giving permission to every man to express his masculinity as he wants. Like you don't have to be the guy on the brownie, brownie paper towels if that guy is still on there. I don't know. That, that's a good question, actually. I haven't seen the brawny man in a while, which is even the thing about that that makes me laugh is that cleaning uh, and like kitchen stuff is traditionally culturally like the woman's job, which is a nightmare in and of itself. It's a crazy concept. And yet the paper towel is just some like ripped dude. It kind of makes me wonder if that's not like brawny's early like uh, magic mic kind of like trying to get women to buy the product by like, oh, let's put a hot guy in the front. But is Mr. Brawny hot? Mr. Brawny? Is it a mister? Is he supposed to be attractive? I don't know. I I think it's I can see, either see it as like, look, we'll put this brawny, like, like buff brawny. dude, yeah. Well, yeah, we'll put this brawny dude on, and so women will be attracted, or we'll make this product attractive to men, and so men will use the paper towels. They'll do that part of the cleaning. Maybe it's so confusing, but I think what you said is true. It's giving people the permission to live their version of masculine or feminine energy and a great example. So I have a, a good example to, to agree with you with actually. So if you want to like, to so get into like what traditional masculine activity is or like accomplishments are, uh, let's, there's a few one, the ones that I love to joke about are like, I can make a fire from scratch. I can chop firewood. I've climbed a mountain. I've done all those things. I've shot guns, like whatever, like drink whiskey. I don't know, like whatever all the stuff that you're supposed to do when you're a guy, whatever all that manly shit is. The thing that makes me the man that I am is I'm comfortable crying in front of my wife. That's the strongest thing that I can do. And achievements and accomplishments that I've done, that's part of my masculinity, but it's only completed by my emotional vulnerability with my wife and the people that are important to me. I, to this day, have a very hard time opening up to random people in the street, which maybe that's a good thing that I'm not like bearing my soul to randos in the street. But when I meet new people, I can be just a little, a little stoic. And it's something that I'm still working on shaking off. But when there's people who are close to me, I make very sure I put the extra effort in to know that how I feel about them and that they know how I think about them and that, you know, I care for them, but that's only like, that's the, the wrapping paper on what I would consider being a man for my own situation. Because I like the fact that I can chop firewood. I think that's a huge part of who I am, but it's only tied together by my emotional vulnerability. I think that if I wasn't, I remember when I wasn't this emotionally vulnerable and I definitely felt more incomplete than I do now. What was that journey like for you? Very painful. <laughs> because uh, like the journey of becoming more emotionally vulnerable. Yeah. I realized that I, so 
to explain that, I have to tell the story of me finishing up bartending. The last two years or so of me bartending, uh, I was miserable. I hated everyone and everything. I would go work at a new bar and the same pattern would emerge. I'd be happy for three to six months. I'd be stoked. I'd be learning all the new systems. I'd be learning their drinks. I'd be learning their food. And I, I love that because I liked becoming the best at where I worked. I was the best bartender everywhere I worked, in my opinion. And I worked very hard to be extra knowledgeable, to know this better, to be faster, to be harder working. And then immediately upon feeling like I had hit the level of mastery that I wanted, I'd turn to my coworkers and say, why aren't you as good as me? I wouldn't use that exact term, but I would expect it to be there. I would expect the lunch bartender to know how I wanted the nighttime shift set up without saying anything. And I started having these resentful expectations on the managers, on myself, on my coworkers, because it was always their fault. This place sucks. That manager's a no shit. Blah, blah, blah. You're an asshole. It turns out it only came to me, I God, I forget the actual moment when it did, but I realized that it's not the restaurant problems. Every restaurant has problems. It's a thing. I was the problem. I was so upset at myself. I was so miserable doing what I was doing that it was a true like enlightening moment where I'm like, oh no, oh no, it's me. I'm the problem. I need to change this. I need to get out of restaurants. And I, I went to my partner, went to Rachel and I told her, you know, this is, I'm, I did a lot of that exploring with her. So she was kind of with me on the journey of like, Hey, you seem like you're miserable and I don't want to be around a miserable person. So like, let's look into that. Uh, which is why she is the amazing partner that she is. Um, and she did something amazing. You know, she's like, Hey, quit restaurants like tomorrow and I can support us for a couple of months and you can figure out what you need to do. And let's redefine how we live our life and let's look into this. So you can not feel like you're going crazy every day and come home just miserable all the time. And that was the beginning of it. And that was about four years ago. Um, I'd say about maybe three, three years ago when we started our company together at the end of that process. And I stopped working for anybody else. And it, um, the journey itself was definitely painful and challenging. I had to come to terms every day with the fact that I needed to, I needed to cry to get my emotions out. I need, had pushed them away for so long and built up so many layers of blame and wh whoever else and anger is a great emotion to hide your feelings with, which is funny because it's made up of your feelings. Um, I had spent so much time holding all of that back that there was so much that needed to come out before I could even begin positive work. I had to get all the shit off of me first. And you know, I, I still unload some stuff every now and then and I still grow and it's still painful, but the benefit of it is so overwhelmingly great feeling that connected to your partner, feeling like I'm not so angry all the time. It's worth every moment of pain and every tear and every mental breakdown and all the things I've gone through. It's worth it every day. Can you still reconnect with that angry guy? A hundred percent. Like a light switch turns on. Really? Okay. Wait, tell me about that. Um, I think it's something that it's something that I live with. That sounds weird. It sounds like um, like a separate personality, like a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing. But I, um, for whatever reason, this is weird because I, I catch my dad is the same way. We have the very similar quick to temper, uh, temper, quick to anger. We're both very quick to get a little hot-headed. And that's something that I, it's funny now that I'm not in restaurants and I try to be a really observant person of my own actions. I catch myself when I'm really, really upset sounding like my dad. And I'll be like, oh, fuck, I can't do this. I got to calm down. I got to take a walk. I got to do something to chill out because I know where this goes and it doesn't feel good. 
And it, it's difficult to sit in those feelings and to avoid them because it feels so good to be righteously angry at someone like anyone's like a, a car would cut me off in the street furious for about 0.3 of a second, like not even a whole second, but I would be livid. And then they go by, I go back on my way. Fine. Water up a duck's back. But it is definitely something that I can turn on and off and it feels really uncomfortable to turn on. And so it's a very conscious effort to, to sit with because I think that my emotions are something that need to be explored and felt and I'll feel that anger. I just don't like giving it to anyone anymore because no one benefits. And if I can sit inside of my own head and sort of say, what am I actually upset about? It's usually something else. And I can kind of talk myself down to getting to the real, the real issue. And then I can bring that same intensity to the actual problem that needs to be solved or what I need fixed or what I need and use that intensity to get through it rather than just explode at everything around me and just make a mess. So how would the you of like 10 years ago, five years ago, if you were saying this stuff to him, how would he respond? Good question. I would say it would probably be a little scary to hear not about the work that needed to be done. It would probably be a little bit shocking to hear how I view myself at that time. Because one of the one of the more impactful conversations that I had when I was working in restaurants was, so when I told you that I would go work in a new place for three to six months and then get really, really just annoying at everybody because I thought I was better than them, I would do that in, I worked in one restaurant for about five, six years, and I would do it there about every year or so. I'd get a little too cocky. And the guy who trained me and taught me to bartend was managing there for the entire time that I was working there after he trained me to bartend, like I think two years into me bartending, he moved up to manager and he sat me down one day and he's like, dude, you got to chill out. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, everyone fucking hates you. He's like, no one wants to work shifts with you. No one wants to do anything. And I'm like 23 years old and I just fucking started crying. Like I lost it because the idea that my coworkers didn't like me, but didn't want to say anything because they knew that I was like a, not a bad person, but they just didn't want to be around me at work. That sucked to hear. And it was really it like shook me a, quite a bit and it reshaped my behavior for a while. Then obviously I got way too cocky, you know, probably like a year later or whatever, but it was good for that year. Um, and that was really hard to hear when I was that age. And so I think that it would be difficult for young me to hear that from slightly older me being like, dude, you know, chill out a little bit. Yeah. And would you have had any idea how to chill out? No, not at all. I had zero self-care, zero coping mechanisms. I go drink with my friends. That's about it. So, okay, so now you still feel the anger, but I mean, that anger that you feel for like a second, mm-hmm. would you, in the past, would you even have been aware of that little flash of anger, do you think? Oh, yeah, and I would have just put wings on it and just thrown it out the window. I would have given it every bit of fire and needed to keep going because it that's i think the thing that no one likes to say when you feel angry and you feel that you're right it feels so good it's like your brain just lives on these chemicals and you want to be angry at everybody and you feel good when you're doing it and you only feel good for like 10 minutes but that 10 minutes it's literally like a drug you feel so empowered and then afterwards you're just exhausted and empty and no one wants to be around you and i never want to be around myself and so just kind of a, it was just kind of a shitty existence for a while. And the funny thing is, is that if you ask me, like, I can tell you that I probably, I had so much fun 
in those years. I was living really unhealthily internally and externally actually, but uh, I was happy and enjoying myself. I was just very unaware of the, the larger implications. And I think that if I hadn't gotten out of restaurants in my late 20s, before it got too late, and then I don't know where I'd be, but I bet you I would be a lot less happy than I am now. Yeah. Okay, wait, were you angry outside of restaurants? Oh, yeah. Restaurants were the easy thing to be angry at because there's a million people around me to blame. I mean, anyone. I can blame the, that dick guest who always comes in or these dumb girls who pour drinks everywhere or the manager who doesn't know what to do with anything and this idiot coworker doesn't know how to stock the bar properly. Like I just make anything like I'm thinking about specific examples right now, as I list it about ways of being angry, but I would carry that everywhere with me. Like traffic was a big thing. And the funny thing is that I would have road rage for all of half a second. I would be like living and I'm like, I'm going to run that guy off the road. And then I'm like, no, I'm not. This is stupid, but he's an asshole. And I don't want to be around this driver. Like I would have little blips of it in almost every aspect of my life. But Restaurants definitely stoked it because I, I am a very opinionated person, unless that's not super obvious. And I'm also very outspoken about my opinion. And as an employee, that made me very problematic. And so the thing is, is um, I'm a, a big subscriber to uh, Todd Herman's alter ego effect concept. I think it's something that is needs to be talked about more and more. And what I realized is that my alter ego is the bartender in me. And I didn't take that off though for about eight years. And turns out, you know, bartender Kyle's not super pleasant to be around at like noon. And, and it's not that fun of a person outside of the work I did. And so, you know, you give someone like a bartender without purpose outside of a bar, I just sort of started, it was my identity and not really a healthy way for a long time. And so I think that I carried that restaurant anger sort of around with me. And I had a huge coat of armor on in terms of, being defensive and emotionally repressed and I was tough and no one messed with me and blah, blah, blah. Like all that stuff I tell myself. So alter egos are things that we use to not turn ourselves into somebody else, but to, it's to turn, play a character. It, yeah. It's to turn off the stuff that don't apply to what you're doing right now. Like, um, I don't know if I had like a fear of speaking publicly or something like that, I probably wouldn't be doing this and right. I'd want to, get into that alter ego uh situation presence to go into an interview like this or a podcast to be confident speaking out loud but this is something that i learned to do for a long time and arguably arguably i am slightly in my alter ego right now doing this but there are parts of myself from back then that i want to take with me forever and there's a lot that i want to leave in the past and i think that's the magic of really working and doing the effort to understand your alter ego and learn why it's important to be able to shut off your home life when you're at work or when you're playing a sport to use the actual reference of the, of the book and of the thought processes. You leave everything that's not on the playing field off because then it's just you doing your thing, getting whatever goal you need to get out of whatever you're doing, unhindered by things that don't apply to the situation. And I think that that's, I was so unaware of what I was doing, but now thinking back that totally was what I, what, what happened. I had formed this bartender alter ego and I didn't turn it off for about eight years. Mm. So when do you use it now? Uh, I do it with the work that we do. I do it when, uh, I do it when I work, do my podcast, when I record podcast episodes, because I love being on other people's podcasts because it's so easy and fun. And like you ask me questions, I'm like, Oh, I'll tell you fun stories. Uh, I'll get into myself. I'm super vulnerable. I'll share it. But when I interview other people, it definitely is a little more intimidating for me. And so I'll, step into it then. Um, 
I inherently flow into it when I'm in a restaurant or a bar. I, Rachel and I joke that we're the worst people or the best people to go out to a bar with or to a restaurant with because our training in terms of restaurant, we were corporate trainers for our restaurant group for a while and um, we both worked at some very, very high-end places. We can't turn off the restaurant awareness. Like I'll see when someone does something the wrong way or they're holding the plate with their thumb and the right, it's like the weirdest little nitpicky things, but I'll see it anywhere I go. I'll definitely have my bartending alter ego on when someone is confrontational with me. Like if someone's being really weird in the street or someone, if we're like at a bar and a guy's being like weird towards me, um, I got very good. And I'm not like a very physically imposing person. I'm like five, eight, five, nine. And like people tend to start fights in bars. It's this weird thing that alcohol does to our brains. And it, I did definitely have a, a little skill for talking people down from aggression as a result of that. So it comes and goes in little places, but definitely more within the work that we do now than I was really aware of up until about a year ago. Wait, that last little bit. Okay, wait, the, you're, so you're using it more now than you were a year ago? I was struggling to use it at all a year ago. I only found out about the alter ego effect and the concept behind it uh, last April, I want to say last, yeah, like March or April, I think, um, Todd Herman gave a presentation at his event 90 day year in San Diego. And he talked about, um, the alter ego effect for the first time. This is pre book, pre everything. And he did things like, okay, everyone, you got to turn your phones off. This is proprietary information. You can't share it outside of here. And it hit me like a freight train in that auditorium. I was like, oh my God, this is why, cause I had really been struggling to feel comfortable in our business because my wife, Rachel, she's she's the star in a lot of ways. And I positioned her like that in my head that she's the leader of our business. She's got the therapy license. She's got a master's degree. I don't have either of those things or most education past high school. I've learned a lot by doing a lot of things, but I don't have what she has. And so I was hiding in our business for a long time as a partner with her, like in terms of like the back end stuff. And then also being on the front of our business, I was almost non-existent and I couldn't feel comfortable. And I remember writing in my journal many times, why can't I feel as comfortable doing this because I care about it as I did when I was bartending and I didn't give a shit. Like I could just go bartend and feel comfortable every single day. I felt like I knew I was a rock star and I couldn't feel that within our own business and it was driving me crazy. And it led up to a medium, a medium mental breakdown, I want to say, uh, right before the 90 day year uh, event. And then the second day, Todd starts dropping the knowledge about the alter ego effect. And I realized right then and there that I had had this bartending alter ego for my entire like time behind the bar. And I never addressed that point of my life. And I never had like put that to bed or like really examined that part of my life. And I just realized that I need to be able to access that part of my brain again, or I won't be able to perform in our business. And I won't be able to feel good doing it, which is what I want because I care so heavily about what the work that Rachel and I do. And it was from that point that I started really diving into my past because the things that we do build who we are. And I spent a very, I spent almost a decade building something and I wasn't sure what it was. And then I walked away from this project and thought I'd be fine with it. And it turns out I wasn't. And that information was life changing for me. And it began this whole process of trying to understand myself better. Hmm. So who are you when you put on that alter ego? It's a little bit Tom Cruise from cocktail. And it's a little not because it's like minus the poetry and like the general like douchebaggery of the character. Um, there's the, it, it's the showy, f not, f it's not necessarily flashy. It's the, 
the showy, quiet confidence thing where it's like, I know exactly the drink to make. I do it without looking like I'm counting. I do it without looking like I'm trying to remember the last ingredient. It's very much like duck on a pond on the front, even though I know I'm oh, going crazy in my head. I'm thinking about the next thing and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. Very comfortable and very confident in the presentation of what I do. And to me, it's, for whatever reason, I can't fully explain it, but it is a little, it's, it's definitely um, Tom Cruise from Cocktail. <laughs> do you have to so i know todd talks about and when people talk about alter ego they talk about like maybe they use a prop or mm-hmm. put on a certain Amer- like piece of clothing do you have to do that to get into your bartender file uh it's a good question and I'm, I'm working on that actually it's not a not a finished product although i never want to be a finished person i think it's constant growth and all that um haven't found a totem i think is what they're called technically I uh, I use music now in a lot of ways because I after realizing that when you know that freight train of information hit me um, in Todd's seminar, I started looking into what I would do before I started bartending. What happened? Everything that built up to the second my foot walked behind the bar. What is that? And a huge part of it is being by myself in my car because I would commute for the most part. I would drive for the first like two years of bartending. I drove about half an hour each way to get there, and then after that it was like fifteen minutes because I moved closer. But I'd be in my car by myself listening to my own music, pretty loud usually, something to kind of get my blood pressure up because the bar that I cut my teeth at and learned to work in was uh, the busiest, craziest restaurant I've ever, it was a, always a new day there and it was a drink heavy restaurant too. So it was, a, it was a really interesting place to work at. So I do whatever I could to kind of fire myself up. And then back then I had totems and I had no idea. I would tie my apron in a very specific way. As I was walking from my car to the restaurant, I had very specific bar tools, uh, a beer bottle opener and a wine key pens and a little notepad. And I put them in my pockets in a very specific way in a prearranged pre-designed way to the point where all of my jeans that I wear for work had one wear spot in the back right pocket of all of them from my uh, bottle opener. Cause it would just sit exactly in that spot. It's to the point now where if I see someone with a hole in their back right jean pocket, and I can tell you if they work in a restaurant or not because I know what that hole is. I specifically know what that is. Um, and I would have this whole little process like this goes here, this goes here. I'm listening to music. Like, and then I would go behind the bar and it would be like that light switch. I would no longer be the person that was walking across the, the parking lot. And the best example that I ever got of that, and it was the weirdest situation. It really made me kind of question my friends for a long time is my best friends, my closest friend group, they came down, for, uh, they drove half an hour to the restaurant that I was working at to see me one time, one time in six years, in the first year or so I was bartending. And they looked at me, I'll never forget it, they looked at me like they didn't know me. Like they didn't recognize me. The way I was talking to them, they like didn't respond in a regular way. And I remember being there and being like, why do my friends suck? Like what's wrong with you guys? I'm, like, I live with half of you, like what's going on? And I realize now that they were looking at my alter ego and had no idea. They're like, why is Kyle so weird? That's probably what they're thinking. They're like, what's going on with him? Why is he the weird one right now? Because I was in a completely different environment and I was acting differently and talking differently. And it's, I've done so much observation on kind of what led up to me bartending and the way I was behind the bar and so overconfident and so, so ridiculous. Uh, the things I do and say, that I don't do now, but it's, it was the confidence for it. And I think that um, I'm still exploring how I get into it now, but music plays a big part. So before I listened, before I got on this podcast with you, I was listening to, listening to, 
uh, the band Muse, one of my favorite bands, they cover Duran Duran's Hungry Like the Wolf for Spotify. And it's the, <laughs> the silliest sounding song. And uh, but yeah, it, it works. Gets me all fired up. I love it. I So wait, I have one question from that story. Did yeah. you ever talk to your friends about like what happened or did you guys just ignore? Um, I, we ignored it then. I don't know if I re-explored that situation with them. I'm still really close with all of them. That's a, that's an interesting thing for me because a lot of my friends are still in my hometown, which I'm, I'm resentful of the hometown. I hold no ill will on them for staying, but it was never where I could be. And I remember around the time when I was talking to them back when I lived there, I kept saying like, I, I can't live here. Everything closes at 9 p.m. Like it's way, I, you know, I don't like the small city that I'm bartending in, but it's, it's half an hour away. And like, I don't like the people in the city that much. And it's like, you know, a lot of flat land and strip malls, but at least there's more restaurants. There's more bars. There's more life down the hill than there is here. And a lot of my friends used to echo what I would say and be like, yeah, like it's, it'd be great to get out. Like, I don't want to get stuck here, blah, blah, blah. And whether or not they think they're stuck there or they view it the same way, I don't know because most of them still there are still there. And I don't want to judge them for not acting the way that I do because I, that would be totally unfair. And if they're happy there, then I respect it. Um, but we've never really gone back over that day. I wonder if, um, I wonder if my friends remember that. I'm curious. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Give you a little homework that's Mm -hmm. totally optional from this episode. (laughs) All right. Let's get back to, well, I don't know where we should go. Masculinity. I want to talk more about that and what you've learned about it since, I mean, you've been talking about it a lot lately. Mm -hmm. So yeah. What have your biggest ahas been, or even like, they don't have to be big. Just what have you learned? I think the overarching thing that even saying it and thinking about it now, I'm like surprised and it also makes me frustrated and laugh simultaneously. It's a very interesting phenomenon that keeps happening. So I remember sitting in high school and feeling like I didn't belong. Like I didn't like anyone I was around and I figured I was trying to fit into a friend group and then I didn't think my parents understood at all so I was you know watching the high school themed movies trying to figure out like is this kind of what it's like or I'm just trying to explore what it is but I felt like an outsider all the time and I felt so emotional all the time and yet I was trying to repress that because you know showing emotions is weakness in high school so I was trying to figure out why I felt emotional. I didn't like it. I was like, well, why do a good example is, you know, some kid was like a dick to me one time and I felt like crying. And I was like, what is the deal? I don't like that. Like, I don't want to cry right now. I want to fight this kid. Like, I don't know what the, why do I feel this way? And I couldn't figure it out. And so, you know, what do you do when you're 14? You stuff it down, 15 years old, stuff it down, hide it away. Cause it's too complex to feel. And I couldn't understand it, nor did I have a, like a sounding board, you know, someone to talk it out with. And so I started talking to somebody when I was planning out masculinity on the rocks and he said exactly that experience in his life 20 years before I experienced it. He, this guy was in his fifties, you know, he done, he has a psychology degree from Berkeley. His name's uh, John Schinnerer. Um, I think he's in his fifties or his forties. I should probably check that before I say it. Um, but he described exactly how I felt in high school. And he's like, more people are feeling like this, but we don't talk about it. So we all think we're the only ones. And like, I almost stood up and started applauding on the podcast. So I was like, fuck, that's the real shit right there. That's what we're all not thinking is that 
we all want to pretend that we're special snowflakes and we're the only individual feeling what we're feeling. But if we can remove our heads from our asses for just long enough to realize that the guy next to me is feeling the same way and he's not saying it because of the same reasons I'm not saying it, that's psychotic. And like we keep telling the guys in this world are in this weird impasse where it's like, Society has said the way things have been is no longer and we don't like it and we want to have change. But society's not saying anything about how to do it. It's just saying be different. It's like telling someone who's having a panic attack to calm down. It's not going to happen. And so when I started talking to him, I was just, I was blown away at how similar our stories were almost to a word, almost to an expression of emotion. And it's just, it reminds me that so many people feel the exact same way. And it, that encouraged me so much to reach out more, which feels so uncomfortable to other guys and just share how I'm feeling and share this, this intense emotional vulnerability because we're supposed to, that's, that's part of it. That's, that's who we are. And the re the reason I think masculinity is on the rocks. Ha ha. See the play, on, <laughs> the play on words in two ways. Um, the reason it is the way it is now is because the men in, in this world and in our country have been living an incomplete life for centuries. There's part of our bodies, part of our brains and our hearts that have been turned off. We've been told to. And the result of changing it, you're either immensely rewarded. You're, um, you're Michael Phelps, you know, getting awarded internationally for his work around therapy and being expressive around it. Or you're shunned and ostracized the first time you do it and you never do it again. And you build up the worst, hateful, most spiteful energy and armor you can around you because you were shunned for sharing how you felt. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. So every, I'd say every human goes through, whether it's in high school or I think, I think for girls, it tends to be before high school. Well, yeah, I mean, you do like actually mature faster than yeah, guys. yeah. So I don't my my school was sixth grade, and uh, so everyone goes through it, but no one talks about it until later. Yeah. So we've got all these boys in high school who are suffering and trying to figure stuff out, and then they grow up and they talk about it and realize, oh yeah, we all have the same experience. Yeah, it's all better. Mm -hmm. How do we? how do we reach the teenagers? It's hard because at that age, I think we can all remember that age. The, it's the way you perceive how the world sees you is so different, you know, because as soon as you get out of high school, I, at least for me, I was like, Oh, Oh, so everything I thought about the world is bullshit. Okay, good. So I'm, I'm out of that. Now I realize that my perception of things was completely wrong for the last four years. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, the issue is that one, high schoolers actually think they know everything, which is true because I did when I was in high school. I thought that I had a firm, I thought I knew everything so well that I wrote a letter to the editor about the Bush administration's election process and how we as uh, Americans are leading ourselves down a path of like misinformation. It was insane. Like I was arguing with adults in our newspaper, which is crazy. <laughs> like I thought I knew more than everybody. It was it's psycho. I wouldn't imagine if some 15 year old is trying to call me out on what my thoughts are on politics. It would drive me crazy. So it's difficult to even get to speak the same language as teenagers. I think in a lot of ways, because the, the way they dictate, the way they talk is so different from any generation older than they are. And I see it now between, you know, my younger cousins who are about half my age and the way they communicate using their phones, technology, 
and in real life is so seamless. It's something that I can't do. I mean, I can't send an Instagram story to somebody at the same time of having an actual dialogue conversation with someone in front of me. They communicate so much faster that older generations have a really hard time speaking to them in a way that high school kids are willing to be patient. And I know that because I was told I wouldn't have a calculator in my pocket when I was in high school. They're like, you're not going to have a calculator in your pocket for the rest of your life, Kyle. You need to learn how to do long-form division. And I'm like, fuck off. I absolutely am going to have a calculator <laughs> just for this conversation. And then it turns out smartphones were invented like the next day. So surprise on you, math teachers. I think that the best way of contacting kids in high school, getting to teenagers and trying to solve the issue before it gets created, if you will, is to sit, hey, if you can, you sit your teenagers down and you say, you can, you're going to feel a lot of stuff. I'm not going to ask you what it is, but I know you're going to feel a lot of things. And you're going to feel like crying at times when it doesn't feel like you're supposed to be. Or you're going to feel angry at times and you don't feel like it's supposed to. Or you're going to be turned on when you don't understand why. Like That's a confusing feeling also. But the thing is, is that what you're feeling is okay. And if you want to talk about it, that's also okay. If you don't want to tell your peers because you're concerned about how they're going to talk to you, that's also okay. You can find other support systems out there. It just needs to be explained like what you're feeling is normal. Because if I can talk to a guy who grew up in a completely different world than I did 20 years ahead of me and it, it's a whole different life and he felt the exact same thing I felt, I guarantee you someone who's 15 years old in high school is feeling the same thing right now. And if I had been told that what I was feeling was okay, and if I needed a way to express it other than trying to figure it out on my own, if I could get some guidance around it, who's to say would have been different? But I, I can tell you now that I probably would have appreciated that quite a bit. So I think that starting out by just telling the kids that you're going to feel a lot of stuff and that's okay. And if you want to talk more about it, let me know. I think that would be a great start. Yeah. yeah. And how about the adults who aren't yet ready to talk about it? How do we help them? Can we help them? Maybe do we yes. want to help them? Well, you can't tell someone what they don't know if they don't want to hear it, which is challenging as human beings. That sucks mm -hmm. that we can't like inception somebody in real life. Otherwise things would be a lot easier. Um, but I would say there's no reason to close a door to most people out there. If someone's just a bastard, then close the door. It's fine. Someone refuses to be a good human being, close the door. It's fine. But if there are people who really struggle with trying to fit into society's impressions or what they think they should be doing or whatever other terms of value they're trying to seek from someone else out there or approval or validation or whatever, I'd start with asking questions. What do they want out of it? What are they looking for? And just start a dialogue rather than, because if you come at it like, it's the biggest mistake men make in conversations with their partners. They try to fix it right away. Oh no, I don't care about, I, I see your experience, but here's the, here's the fix for it. Here's the hammer to your nail. But not everyone's asking for a hammer. They want to look at the nail and figure out what they're doing. Are they hanging a picture? Are they making, are they framing a house? Are they hanging drywall? Like there's a million types of nails and all guys want to do is just bring the same size hammer and that doesn't work for life. That's not how things operate. And so I would say just creating a dialogue with someone who, if you care about them and you want to help them or at least tell them that it's okay to feel their feelings and if you want to be a support system, you're there, just starting a dialogue without telling them, hey, your problems need to be fixed is a great way to go. Like just start it by saying, hey, like if you want anything, I'm here. If you want to talk about your day at work, if you want to talk about why you're crying, anything is a good start as long as you come to it with kindness.
And that circles back to, I can't remember if we were recording when we were talking about (laughs) how you basically talk for a living. Oh yeah. That was early on before we recorded. Yeah. So here you are after talking for a living while doing other things like pouring drinks, Mm. talking for a living and encouraging other people to talk. It's perfect. Yeah. You know, eventually, um, well, it's like trying to identify, it's an entrepreneur exercise to identify your superpowers it's kind of a funny, it's a foundation, I think, really, of the alter ego effect, whether or not it's part of Todd's presentation. It's something that a lot of entrepreneurs do. They go find your superpower. What are you inherently good at? Which is a really great uh, thing to do for yourself because I think that people often are really quick to, um, to downplay what they're good at. I know I am. I'm super good at it, actually. I'm so good at downplaying what I'm good at that I actually sound like I'm better about talking about what I'm good at than actually doing it. So what's your superpower? No, it is talking. There it is. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I could talk. Well, just because I've done the the, the work to get here, um, I would say starting that superhero process and trying to look at yourself in a way that it's outside of your own shoes. Like if you're looking at another person, is a great way to start looking at your own superpower abilities, like what you're naturally good at, and just being happy about it. I think mm-hmm. is a great way to go about that and just acknowledge, like, oh. I am good at talking. I don't know what this really applies to right now, but at some point I want to be happy that I'm good at it. Like that's a great thing to do for yourself. Otherwise, I mean, we're great at self-depreciation. Human beings are so good at it. That whole being self-aware thing, we're awesome at making ourselves feel like shit. And sometimes you need a good friend to ask you if you need some help getting out of your own way. I mean, Rachel helps me get out of my own way on a weekly basis. It's great. That's what partners are for. Hell yeah. And that's why being open to them is important. Yes. And um, back to the superpower mm. bit, I think I agree with you. That's actually one of the questions that I ask on my intake form before I have a conversation with somebody is what is your superpower? And little tidbit to throw out there for all the listeners, if you're struggling with it, or even if you're not, I love this exercise and it's asking people, ask someone who scares you a little bit. What about me is unique and inspiring? Ooh, I like that. Especially the scary part. I mm, I want to do that now, but that's scary to do. <laughs> yeah. I challenge you do it. And, and some of the answers you'll be like, Oh yeah. You'll be kind of bored by them. Mm-hmm. Cause you'll be like, like if you don't ask somebody who scares you, you'll be like, yeah, I figured <laughs> I actually like, I see something different. Um, but you know, some people might completely floor you. Yeah, no, I'm um, now I'm thinking about who would I ask? What, who scares me? That makes me kind of makes me sweat a little bit, but also like in a way that I'm excited, but I'm always like, ooh, I don't know. I, I don't know if I really want to hear what people think about me. Yeah. Well, actually, I will. I was just wondering if I should share the story because I know my dad listens to the podcast sometimes. So, dad, if you're listening, hey, shout out to you. I'm going to share this. I asked him. It was scary. And he told me, in a way, he answered the question, like, wrong, in that it's just not how I expected. And he shared with me that he grew up in northern Maine, where it's a really homophobic culture. Mm -hmm. And so he said that he had reached out, because of me, he reached out to some of his gay classmates and had become really good friends with them. Mm. Classmates from college. So, you know, it... You, you might be a world changer in ways you had no idea. That's really sweet. That's really, really when then kudos to, to him. If you're listening, you know, yes. Kelsey's dad for, for being that open. I think that that's something that 
I would like our culture, especially the men in them to, to focus on is you can make a million mistakes. You're going to make a million mistakes every day forever, but being able to make the mistake and then go back three years later and say, Oh, I actually have the ability to repair this or change it or understand that. Because I used to think that I was infallible. I could do no wrong. I also was in my very early 20s and super cocky. But once I realized that I can look at my mistakes and learn from them and actually go back and directly change what I did, and this is way after bartending, I apologize to every manager I've ever had. I sat down and I wrote this, say I copied and pasted the same message and changed the first names to every manager I'd ever had when I used to bartend. Where I was like, hey, um, I really enjoyed working with you. I'm sorry that I was a dick the whole time. But like, that was really fun. I took a lot of it away. It gave me a ton of skills. But just so you know, I recognize that I was an asshole for probably the majority of the time that you employed me. So sorry, but also thank you. Did you get responses? Totally. Absolutely. And uh, they're all... They're all really good. It's actually, it's kind of nice because yeah, most of them are like, yeah, you were all of the things you just said, but also, you know, you were a great employee in a lot of ways and you were a great bartender. You were really good at it and you were fun to work with actually the majority of the time. And then the times where you weren't, you really weren't, but you know, we've all grown from that and like you're doing this now and we're doing this now and it's, it's all water under the bridge. It's all part of life, which has been super nice. I don't, I don't think I've really burned any bridges. I don't think so. I don't think I was that bad. <laughs> no, it sounds like you have a whole like, it sounds like you have a really strong support network. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I learned at some point in restaurants that giving positive uh, feedback to people is really, really helpful. I think the, the owner of the company at the time that I worked for did a lot of negative reinforcement. And it worked to a degree, but I learned uh, at some point along the way that positive reinforcement was really good. And I could, this is such a selfish story, actually. I was started giving positive reinforcement to the bartenders who weren't that good uh, when I was training people or when I was working in a new place because I thought if I was nice to them, they would stop fucking up so much. And that's actually what I would tell people. <laughs> about why I was being super nice to somebody. They're like, oh, you're really showing a lot of like care to so-and-so. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want them to fuck up their uh, next night shift. So I'm being nice. But like I, I had also recognized that if I wasn't, it did cause more problems. So, you know, better to kill him with kindness than anything else, even though the kindness that I was showing at the time was a little fake. So yeah, it was kindness from your head instead of from your heart. Exactly. And, and sometimes that's okay, I think. Well, I, I feel like sometimes it can come first. And yeah, then your heart can come along for the ride. Right, right. I can say now I wish I had been more honestly nice with some people throughout the time. I also wish that I had been a little more, mm, not rude, but not dismissive either. I wish that there were some people I chose to engage with less in like a combative way because it was a huge waste of time. But, you know, learn what you learn. Yeah, that's all a process. It's all an evolution. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, this question just popped into my head. So going back to anger, Mm-hmm. What's the gift in your anger? Hmm. Clarity. It's creepy clear how I can see a solution to an issue when I'm super, super angry. And it may, if, you know, it might be a completely irrational 
where it's like, oh, well, what's your solution to get out of this traffic? And I'm like, well, ban cars or like ban public or uh, ban privately owned public transit systems. Like we were living in the San Francisco Bay Area back in the day. And I believe that, uh, yeah, BART, I think, was built like privately way back, the mass transit system there. It was built by a private company and it's just a nightmare the entire time and it sucks and there's like needles everywhere and like feces. It's disgusting. I have a whole tirade that I can do about the San Francisco public transit system. But like, I would be upset about it. Like the train just wouldn't show up or it'd be like 20 minutes late. And they're like, what's your solution? And I'm like, ah, oh, bam, public transit. This is a nightmare. But a lot of times there was um, a very, the path from A to B becomes very, very clear to me when I was super, super angry. And part of it I think is helpful. And I think part of, I think the part that's helpful in the clarity in it is a lack of caring around what else is there. Like I want the solution and nothing else matters. And sometimes that clarity is really powerful and useful. The majority of time, the majority of the times it's not because all you're doing is hurting or damaging anything around what you're doing. But there is something to be said for that moment of like, I know exactly how to get what I want, regardless of what anyone else thinks or needs from me or will think about me. So I think we get really caught up in other people's perceptions of what we do sometimes. And I would say that would be the, the superpower that I would take out of the, the anger that I felt and still feel from time to time was definitely a clarity type of feeling. I think also there might be another little tidbit in there, which is knowing what you want. There are a lot of people mm. out there who don't know what they want, period, mm. like ever. Right. And, and that's a good point, I guess. And even my ridiculous, now that I think about that with what you said, which I think is really smart is even my ridiculous, like ban public transit. This is a nightmare. We can all walk everywhere. Like, is that ridiculous? Yes. Do I think that like, I'm a little right? Also, yes, because you know, public transit has created a whole bunch of problems and there's pollution and waste and who's to say if we're supposed to travel in these train cars. But I, yeah, you're right. I think that having a little bit of knowing what you want out of something, no matter how ridiculous and the willingness to state what you want, even though you know it's ridiculous. Like, I know we're not going to ban public transit. I live in Manhattan now. Like, I need public transit to do anything. But being able to stand by your ridiculous words, even if they're ridiculous, I think there's definitely something to that. I agree. I like that. Yeah, there's a lot to that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Kyle, what's your... Sorry, big question. And I actually, I think when I asked Rachel the same question... I prefaced it the same way. It's a big question. Okay. I'm going to ask it. What's your mission? My mission is to help people, men and women uh, in this world to feel more comfortable when they don't, when they feel uncomfortable. I want people to feel more comfortable when they feel uncomfortable in periods of growth because I felt so uncomfortable in so many periods of growth, but I didn't understand it. And I had no real way of understanding it. I didn't have the tools to figure out why I sat in every single class in my entire life and just felt bored. And I know that sounds like, you know, every teenager ever, but there was something else to it. I knew I wasn't supposed to be learning geometry. It doesn't apply to me. I don't know what that is. And it sounds, of course, no one's going to listen to a high schooler say geometry doesn't apply to me. Like, what stupid shit is that? But I, I knew it in my heart. And I remember looking at like photography class and being like, that seems really cool. And then the, um, who's the person in high school that helps you like go to college or like tells you what to do? Yeah, Guidance counselor. counselor. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she was like, well, that doesn't apply to college credits. And I was like, oh, well, I guess then, because I saw this weird idea that college was something I was supposed to do. 
And I, I wish so badly that I could go back to myself then and just be like, whatever sounds good to you, no matter what type of education it is. It doesn't matter if you're like plants and grass class. If that's a class, do it. Like whatever sounds good to you, because I would have gone after psychology a lot more than I did. I didn't think I was smart enough to be good at psychology. I uh, avoided classes that didn't get college credits, like extracurricular ones, because I didn't know what I wanted. So I was just doing what I was told, which was all the bullshit that we tell ourselves that, you know, go to college, get a job and work your way up and everything that I didn't do in life. Um, it was so uncomfortable. And I think that a lot of people can relate to that. And a lot of people can feel uncomfortable being open and honest with their partner for the very first time. And I, I went around in circles in my head before I told Rachel that I loved her. And then it's jumped off the cliff, like it's two weeks into it. And I think that there's so much that can be gained from more communication around the uncomfortable parts of our lives because we've learned that if we talk about something, we get better at it or we understand it more. We're human beings. We're not psychic. All we have is communication with our words. We have sign language and written text, which is physical representations of words, but that's all we have. We really don't communicate more than like one or two ways when you break it down. And so if we're all feeling similar situations and going through similar emotional things and feeling the same way, but we're not talking about it, then we're not unlocking a huge part of humanity by hiding from it. And great on all of us are figuring it out in our 20s and our 30s and moving on. But if we can start cracking that egg with younger people and starting to work on having them understand their own feelings a little bit more, I would love to be a part of that. And I think that it's a natural progression for what I want in life to do the work that I do with Rachel at Right Wellness Center to help people in relationships. Because if you have a good, if there's a happy family dynamic, it's going to wash off on the kids and on everyone else. And when the divorce rate's been floating around 50% for the last, as long as I can remember, it makes so much sense to me why there are so many children who struggled the way that I did. And it's not my parents' fault that I struggled the way that I did. They did the best they could, but it's because as a culture, we haven't been talking about the things that we all go through enough. We talk about it as adults. We don't talk to our kids about how they go through it. And in fact, it's being pushed back a lot more in a lot of parts of our country, which is sad. And uh, yeah, that's my mission in a very long sense. I, can I offer a concise way to say it? Mm-hmm. Just fucking talk about it. <laughs> yours yeah. is much more eloquent, but no, I feel no, like that's I, your bottom line. I like yours, though. I'm going to say that's going to be like my uh, my email signature. Just fucking talk about it. <laughs> um, we haven't talked about The Bachelor yet, so so share with us, please, what oh I, I know um, Right Wellness Center is up to a lot of good stuff, but tell us this latest project, please. So, uh, well, the season is coming to an end. Well, it is ending. Today's the ending as, the, as we record this of The Bachelor. So this comes from a, this comes from some intentional self-care that turned into something much larger. So when Rachel and I first got together, she, you know, we figured out what our self-care was. For me, it was playing video games. For her, it was watching um, a couple of different reality TV shows, but mostly The Bachelor when it was on and all the different subsidiaries, Bachelor in Paradise, Bachelorette all of it. And I, man, I talked so much shit about it. I was like, this is the dumbest thing. You get a bunch of 25 year olds all trying to date and they do it on reality TV. And then people think it's smart and it's so silly looking. And of course they're falling in love. They're in like Venezuela all the time. and It's gorgeous and whatever. I talked a lot of shit about it, which is fine. We can tease each other about our self-care. Rachel makes a lot of fun of me about video games. She'll recite clips of audio 
from like popular video game dialogue to make fun of me sometimes even to this day it's pretty hilarious actually um and we kept noticing though that people would talk about the bachelor uh and kind of frame their own relationships within the context of the show and rachel started getting me to listen to she asked me like hey do you want to just watch like explore my self-care for a little bit and i said sure you know a couple years in, i'm like all right i'll I'll try, and she made me promise I'm not going to be too snarky. I'll just I'll let it go and see what happens. And we started watching it together. It's an engaging show. You just create it creates dialogue. We were talking about this earlier. The show just begins dialogue. There's something on it. You watch someone do these these crazy things on on reality TV, and it just creates something to talk about. And we started listening to podcasts from the previous contestants. The world of podcasting is like the Wild West right now. It's expanding like crazy. Everyone's got one. And the Bachelor franchise is no different. There are, I think, like 10 different Bachelor-themed podcasts from previous contestants of the show, which is a great like kind of look behind the curtain as like what really goes on that they don't show you on the cameras. And here's the thing is that all of these podcasters that were previous contestants of the show give great insight on what the show is like and their experiences of it. These people are not relationship experts, and yet they are giving relationship advice. And I'm not a doctor, therefore I do not give medical advice. I can give you some good tips, like maybe eat your veggies and drink a lot of water. That's as close as I get to medical advice though. Or like let your cut breathe a little bit before putting a Band-Aid on or whatever. Like I have some practical anecdotal knowledge. The people who are talking about relationships on the show, they're not speaking in a healthy way when there's something that could be viewed as maybe emotionally manipulative or passive aggressive way of speaking to each other in a way that's not healthy. And yet the show's framing it as a positive thing. That stuff needs to be talked about in a healthy and understandable format. And the other podcasts, they're entertaining, but they're entertainment. They're not educational. And so what we started to do is we figured out that we have the opportunity to be those educated voices around the show. And part of me thinks it's kind of presumptuous to be like, we're going to be the experts on relationships when it comes to the bachelor. But the only way anyone became good at doing anything is by doing it. And so we dove headfirst in this last season with Colton Underwood as the bachelor. Uh, and it was a very, it's been a very contentious season. So we do, we watch the show. And then the following morning on uh, Tuesday mornings, we do a, one to two hour live YouTube recap show, which we then turn into our podcast. And it's called The Right Reasons. Spell the guy last name. And The Right Reasons is a common phrase from the show because one of the things people get accused of when they're on the show and they may not be there actually for the, the bachelor or bachelorette as a contestant, they may be there for more Instagram followers so they can sell ads or, you know, so a lot of the guys have like bodybuilding apps and they want to get their app on like the bestseller list. And they always accuse each other of not being there for the right reasons. And so when they say it on the show, we fist bump every time because it's like free promo somehow in my mind. Um, so yeah, we basically want to take the reality show that it is, speak on it as experts, and use something that people are already thinking about their own relationships with, but give them some actual informative, helpful commentation and understanding of the show. And then we also will give uh, out handouts and some freebie stuff that we do within Right Wellness Center, like communication scripts. Like if you're seeing this guy, if you're seeing Colton and one of the girls talk in a way that is really difficult to understand because no one's saying how they feel, they're just talking around how they feel a lot. We can use our communication scripts. Colton could have used this differently and actually like said what he meant instead of talking around it for a long time. And that's a made up little story, but that's what we do on the, on the show and uh, why we watch The Bachelor for work, which is crazy that I say out loud.
I love it. <laughs> I love it. You watch TV and talk about it for work. Mm-hmm. Common theme is talking about it. I'm now understanding. Yep. Changing lives, talking about it, talking to change lives. Fucking talk about that. Yeah, exactly. Just fucking talk about it. <laughs> um, Kyle, what else? Is there anything else we haven't talked about? I, I mean, I feel like we could talk about anything and everything just endlessly, but this, I, no, I'm feeling good. How, how about you? What do you think? I'm feeling good. I, got, I mean, we could talk about bikes, but we can talk about that another time. <laughs> that that would be a, a good separate story of how I chose to repress a huge part of my past for a long time and finally come to terms with it. Right, well, we can leave it in the past for this episode. That's fine. Maybe we'll have you and Rachel come back together for another episode. That could be fun. Uh, I can't speak for her, but I know that I would love to. And I'm going to, yeah, she probably wants to too. Yeah, I, I think it's she wants fine. to. I'll yeah. speak for her. She All wants right. to. <laughs> so how can people find you? find the podcast, learn more about you, all the things. Uh, yeah, all the things. So social media is great for that. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at the right underscore Kyle, right spelled like my last name with a W. Uh, I'm on Facebook, like everyone. Uh, you can go check out on Facebook, Right Wellness Center's Inner Circle. We have a little membership group where we do live master classes once a month, which is super fun. You can check out rightwellnesscenter.com for all the cool things that Rachel and I do business-wise. And if you're curious about a little more relationship work or if you want some, what the thing is that one thing we have is super cool right now that we're doing is we have a relationship assessment uh, and I won't go super in detail on it, but basically we can tell you exactly where you need to do work in your relationship and we can tell you exactly how amazing your relationship is that you may not see because you can like human beings, we always focus on the negativity. We don't see the positivity very easily. We have a test that can show you exactly that. So if you're curious about that, head on over to rightwellnesscenter.com and check it out. Uh, it's called the relationship assessment. And for the podcast, masculinityontherocks.com on iTunes, on Spotify, on most of your places. And if you find a platform that doesn't have it yet, let me know. And, uh, I think that's it. I'm sure as soon as we stop talking, I'll be like, oh, I forgot to mention the actual way of contacting me. But I think it's all the places. Instagram, Facebook, website. All right, sounds good. Listen to the podcast. Subscribe. All the stuff. Leave some stars. All the stuff. If you have questions, if you you hear me say something where you're like, ooh, I got to question you about that, Kyle, feel free. You know, I'm always learning. Because he loves to talk. Love to talk. Professional talker. I love it. Thank you so much, Kyle. This is fun. Uh, Absolutely, Kelsey. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please head over to Facebook and join the group Find Your Awesome with Kelsey Abbott. It's free. And if you want more than that, go to my website, kelseyabbott.com. And there you can sign up for my newsletter and get a series of free guided meditations. And I would really appreciate it if you could head over to the podcast app and leave a review of the Find Your Awesome podcast. Your reviews help other people learn about this podcast. Thank you so much. That's all I've got for you, friends. Go forth and be awesome. Awesome.